0: We've kind of been uh, on this journey for a while of, um, you know, the supernatural and for, for just about, well, ever since I met Bill and before that, I, I received Jesus through an encounter I had. I've shared it several times, but when I was 15, my mother was very sick and um, she had psoriasis all over her body and uh, I was just really scared, kid, and in the middle of night, actually probably one, two, three o'clock in the morning on a summer night, I I said out loud, if there's a God, if you heal my mother, I'll find out who you are and and I'll serve you the rest of my life. And an an audible voice said, my name is Jesus Christ and you have what you requested. The next morning, my mother was completely well. Not the first uh, time I've ever heard an audible voice. And the second time and the last time I ever heard an audible voice was a week later. And the voice came back to me and said, my name is Jesus Christ. You said that if, you, if I healed your mother, you'd serve me, and I'm waiting. And uh, so I spent the next three years looking for God. I, I, didn't, I couldn't hardly read. I graduated from high school with third-grade uh, level reading. Couldn't hardly read. <clears throat> and I would just go from church to church and stand in the back of the church. And I didn't know what I was looking for. Had never been to church before in my life except for to a wedding. And I would just say the God who spoke to me isn't here. L- let me just say this. He may have been in those places, but I didn't perceive him there. I didn't know what I was looking for. So, And um, <clears throat> finally, uh, I met Kathy when she was 12. We got engaged when she was 13. That's a true story. <laughs> it speaks to the functionality of our families. <coughs> <laughs> If somebody looked at my daughter at twelve, I would break both his arms. <coughs> I took my thirteen year old granddaughter to Africa last two months ago and an African guy, seventeen year old African guy was following her around and <coughs> I you know just came over me that I went from grandfather to father just one African trip. And I told the young man, you know, you can look, but if you touch, I will break both your arms. You speak English? he kind of laughed. I'm like, no, I'm serious. In our country, this is what we do. This is our tradition. <laughs> so, um, I'm sorry. So, anyway, so we... We went from place to place I look I went from place to place just I was really really hungry for God when you know when God speaks to you he doesn't It's not just it's not just the words he says like he releases. I don't know. We call it grace he releases something in you that Creates a a passion and desire In you that you didn't have before And I I don't mean that I, I wasn't always looking for God in some level I think that I was but when when God spoke to me audibly it created this intense hunger, and I didn't even know that I got saved in the Jesus movement. Like, I didn't know there was a Jesus movement till 15 years after I got saved, because the people I was around, you know. Anyway, you understand. And um, so we went to this home group, and it was mostly a, a friend of mine from work invited us. I was 18, That would have made Kathy 15. We go to this home group, and they're all singing Hallelujah, Hallelujah. I'm like, man, God is here. <clears throat> And uh, there was about probably I don't know how many kids, 100 kids probably jammed into this home, not a very large home, and most of them were ex drug addicts. <clears throat> and while they while we were singing Hallelujah, while they were singing Hallelujah, it was them at first. We were crammed in this this front room, and we were sitting on the floor. And different people would stand up and say, I've been I was delivered from heroin six months ago, instantly delivered. And they would just stand up and share their testimonies. I had never seen anything like like it's amazing and. At the, um, towards about the middle of the meeting, during worship, the a young man who was leading them, uh, who was playing guitar, who was actually leading the meeting, maybe he was four years older than us, uh, he he said, does anyone in the room want to receive Jesus? I'm like, dude, I've been trying to do this for three years. That would be me. And Kathy's like, if you are, I am. So we prayed the prayer and received Jesus and that night and and when the whole meeting was over, he, he came over. His name was Ken Hughes. He came over and he, he explained that we had just received Jesus and that we were born again, brand new babies. And that made total sense to me. told me, you know, he read the passage that we were born again and, and that we needed a father in our lives. And that totally made sense to me. So I, my father drowned when I was three. And he, and he brought two young men that were probably two or three years older than us. And he said, which one of these men do you want to be your father? I've never been to church before. I'm like, well, I'll just take the better looking one. <laughs> you know, no discernment at whatsoever. But um, that man became our spiritual father. And I didn't know that we were in the shepherding movement. <laughs> till 10 years ago. <laughs> 10 years ago, I found out that we were actually in the shepherding movement. And everybody talked negative about the shepherding movement. It was wonderful for me. I'm sorry if you had a bad experience. I definitely needed a father in my life. And I got saved the day I got received Jesus. I received my first spiritual father. Actually did his funeral about seven years ago. And uh, his name was Art Kipperman. And he was a great father to us. And when we moved, that's another story probably for another night. But um, so I I was... um, I was born again into a family, and I, w- I was so excited to have a family because my family was so, was so broken. And, uh, you know, how many of you understand that the, that the church was born in a covenant, not a convention? <laughs> and I, I feel so strongly that, you know, um, covenant has been such a big part of our, our lives. I, I've n- never known a spiritual life without covenant. And um, Danny was talking about um, succession planning, covenant succession planning. And I think um, a lot of students... Is it all right if I just talk to you for a few minutes? And i am probably preached, but just this, all these things going through my mind. I, I, I think the students often come here for the supernatural, but they don't stay here because of that. They, they, they stay here because of something they can't always articulate, but they say, this place feels like a family. And we've been together so many years... Uh, Kathy and I and Bill and Benny, we, the four of us have been together, I think, 33 years. And Danny's been with us forever and Charlie. And I, I, I'm, I'm forgetting so many. But, it, I mean, we just, um, we just grew up just believing that we were a family. And I, I, I feel um, a little bit uh, stressed, distressed over some of the things I hear being taught. And I was sharing with the students the other day that, you know, whenever you teach grace in a way... That takes away responsibility whenever you teach grace in a way that takes away personal responsibility. You have a different gospel <laughs> Like you're saved into a family. I was talking to um, one of my former graduates um, some time ago And he was telling me we were just we were just having this conversation really great um, Young man and he we were interacting. And he was telling me, you know I believe that the that the cross did it all. I'm like You know, when people say that, you know, of course you want to, of course it did. (laughs) But when someone says that, it's like when someone walks up to you and says, I'm a prophet. Like, you could believe in prophets, but when someone introduces themselves like that, you're kind of like, okay, so what's going on? So, you know, he said, I I believe the cross did it all. I'm like, I said, I I know I want to say, of course, but the fact that you're saying that tells me that you don't think I believe that. So I said, "So, so, what does that mean to you?" He says, "Why well, don't believe I have to ask for forgiveness anymore?" I'm like, "Okay, I'm, I'm not getting where you're going with this." But so, well, I believe that Jesus did everything, and, and and that you know, asking for forgiveness is 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 a works. Like it's like it's not by our works, but it's by His. And and so we, we end up in this conversation, just trying to understand where he's coming from, and. And I said, you know, um, and he said, you, you know, and he's finally, he's getting really passionate about it. And I'm mostly just asking questions, trying to figure out what's going on with him. And and finally, he said, Do you believe that if you don't ask for forgiveness for a sin, you're going to go to hell? I said, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not trying to stay out of hell. I'm trying to have a relationship with Jesus. I, I said, I, I'm not trying to figure out what I have to do to get to heaven. I'm trying to have a relationship with Jesus, and I said I I don't spend my days trying to figure out um, how much I can do and not have my wife divorce me. I'm not trying to stay out of a divorce. I'm trying to have a marriage. And if I um, if I offend my wife, I I don't want to. Well, the marriage covenant means that you know that I don't have to ask for forgiveness. It's like if I offend my wife, no one has to. I don't want to have to ask for forgiveness. I'm just going to ask for forgiveness because. I want to have a great relationship with her, so so I'm like I don't I don't know what verses you're using, but you know I, I don't want to be uh, extra biblical. But if I offend the father, I, I want to have a talk to him. I want to talk to him about that. Not because not because I found the verse for it or against it, just because I'm in a relationship, and I was saved into a relationship, and like no one even had to tell me that if I did something that was, you know. Um, if I did something that was wrong, I want to talk to the Father about it, and He said, um, "You know, I think you, um, I think you're making people sin conscious." And I said, "I think they should be conscious of sin if they sinned. <laughs> the worst thing in the world is when you've sinned and you don't feel bad about it. And so, uh, anyway, but I'm really not talking about sin. I'm really talking about like we were saved into a family, and I, I don't know. To me, I, I feel like. The orphan spirit is beginning to create teachings that are th- that you know you take a few verses and you you build a whole culture around a few verses and I think that anything that takes you out of out of a family anything that takes you out of covenant anything that takes you out of relationship I don't care how you spin it is a different gospel and I and I, I'm really concerned about that you know when um when in the Old Testament the word fathers mentioned 613 times in the Old Testament. Four times for God. 613 times, four times for God. So 609 times the word fathers used for a human. In the New Testament, the word fathers used 311 times. 249 times for God. And Jesus teaches us one prayer, and it begins with our Father. Our Father. He's not not just saying like, Hey, God, the father, he's saying when you pray, I want you to pray to him, not as if he's God, but as if he if your father is God. (laughs) In other words, I want you to relate to God as a father. Listen, I know how you came to the old covenant, but I'm bringing you into a new covenant. And I want you to relate to him as if he's your father, because he is your heavenly father. And by the way, when um, when the world needed a savior, it sent a son. It didn't send a servant. I understand the son is a servant, but he sent a son. And by the way, the, the book is about us going to a wedding and we're the ones getting married. And I, I think sometimes uh, I have a sense that we have exchanged the wedding for the marriage. <laughs> that we have emphasized the wedding and we think that a great wedding means you're going to have a wonderful marriage. And, I, and I, I'm, you know, it's um, in... You see people in the world. I'm not just saying it as a bad thing But they spent they'll spend six months planning their wedding and they won't spend six days planning their marriage they will spend thousands and thousands of dollars on their on their wedding and they and they're not spend $10 on their on learning how to be married And um, and I think that sometimes we think that having a great wedding is somehow related to having a great marriage and we should be able to look at lots of Hollywood marriages and know that that's not true. Weddings and know that's not true. And so, no, we, we, um, it's important that people realize that the church was born in a covenant. Jesus, um, you know, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body. And Then he takes the blood and you know this, you know, why we take communion so that we remember why do we take communion? So we remember that we live on the other side of the cross Like do this in remembrance of me Remember that you're in a new covenant. This isn't just a new testament. It's a new covenant We were we are not born in an orphanage. We were born into a family This is a family affair And it's really important that the church doesn't become a business or it doesn't become a convention. Or we don't treat it like like the goal is to gather a bunch of people. The, the goal is to have sons and daughters and fathers and mothers that we, as, as we've heard. You know, uh, Danny put so well, I thought, this morning. Just powerful. But, um, but it's, it's important that we realize that we, um, we were saved into a family. And that we were saved into a, a new covenant. And I, I've taught this many times before, but I think it's appropriate here to... Just touch on it again. You know, Jesus kept saying, especially the last six or eight months of his ministry, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. And uh, it's kind of funny. I, I think the Bible's really funny. Jesus, I think, is hilarious. <clears throat> Disciples are nuts. None of us would pick any of those guys. I, Peter and I would get along good. He justifies my personality. But Jesus turned, you know know how many times Jesus kept saying, one of you will betray me. On one of the accounts, I think it's in the book of Luke, he turns to the guys and he goes, one of you will betray me. And the next verse says, and so they argued about who was the greatest. (laughs) The the placement of those scriptures is hilarious. Like, one of you will betray me. It can't be me. I rock. Probably Peter. You know, and Thomas is all, I doubt it. But Jesus kept saying, one of you will betray me, one of you will betray me. And that, that had to be, you know, really disheartening for the disciples. And, and then on the night, and it's called the night in which he was betrayed, the night in which he was betrayed, he takes bread. And, you know, and, he's, and, he, makes, and he makes a covenant. And he turns to them, he says, one of you will betray me. And, they, and Peter turns to John, who's evidently sitting next to Jesus, at least in the picture of the Last Supper he is. And... um. <laughs> I don't know why they're all sitting on one side of the table that you don't do that at our house, I guess. I guess for the picture, it's like, OK, guys, all get on one side of the table. But uh, I'm sorry. So Peter turns to John, who's evidently is sitting next to Jesus and says, ask him if it's me. And you know the story. John doesn't ask Jesus if it's Peter. He asks him if it's him. And then, and then Jesus does something really radical. He said, let's make a covenant. And when Jesus says, let's make a covenant, Judas says, it's time for me to leave. And he gets up and he leaves. Now, for months, Jesus has been saying, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. And they can't figure out who it is, which is disheartening to me because, you know, if, G- if Judas couldn't do miracles, they would know it was Judas, right? It's like every time we're praying for the sick, Judas has to go to the bathroom. It's got to be Judas. So it's a little disheartening that they can't... I mean, they're, they're, they're not just going to church on Sunday. I mean, these guys are living together for three and a half years. So it's like when Jesus says, one of you betrayed me, the fact that it's not obvious is a little disheartening. And then Jesus says, let's make a covenant. And Judas says, time for me to get out of here. And he betrays Jesus, we know, that night with a kiss. Remember? And, and to me, this is the Judas Spirit. The Judas Spirit wants intimacy without covenant. It's called cohabiting. I've come for what I can get. And when, when I've got everything I can, I sell what's left of our relationship out for 30 pieces of silver. I haven't come to contribute. I haven't come to lay down my life. I've come for what I can get. And, you know, the difference, you know, we, we in America at least... We have lots of people that we know, we all have friends that have two or, you know, a couple of children together and they're living together and they've never been married. And you're like, you guys lived together for ten years and you've got two children. Why don't you get married? And they go, oh, well, it's just a piece of paper. Like, if it's just a piece of paper, why don't you sign it? I'll tell you why you don't sign it. Because in, in covenant, see, a covenant means I lay down my life so that you can live. And it's a partnership, so you lay down your life, I lay down my life. I, the way that we both live is I laid down my life for you, you laid down your life for me, and that's a covenant. At least that's a piece of the covenant. But cohabiting says, it, see, so, so covenant says, I'm in this for what I can give. Cohabiting says, I'm in this for what I can get. The reason why I won't sign a piece of paper is because I use the fear of abandonment to get you to do what I want. And I don't want to sign a piece of paper that says, I'll be here forever. Because I use the fear that I may leave you to get you to do what I want you to do. And that's why kids are born into insecurity. Because we use fear of abandonment as a way to get our stuff. And I fear that that spirit has permeated the church. And people come to church, but do they become the church? And we often perpetuate it as leaders by celebrating weddings with no marriage. And so we practice our lines. Come on. You know where I'm going. We practice our lines. And we, we, we get our lines just perfect, and we get the music right. And, you know, we practice the lines over and over so we know exactly how to move the crowd. And, 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 it's, and it's like, who wants to get married? Who wants to receive Jesus? And people come to receive Jesus. And it's awesome. And you understand, I'm not against weddings. This is not about... You, you, are you with me at all? It's that I want to make sure that the wedding has a great marriage. And so it's like, man, we had a thousand people saved in our church this year. Well, how come you grew by 20? What happened to the people who received Jesus, did they get saved into a family? Or did we just get to count them? <clears throat> you know, I told you, my, my brother, my, my father drowned when I was three. And my mother remarried when I was five. And I've told this story many times. It's in a couple of my books. And I, I have, I've had two stepfathers, and both of them were very violent men. Thankfully, both of them are saved now which is awesome. One of them went home to be with the Lord last year, my first stepfather. He was a very he was an alcoholic and a rageaholic, and he was when he was with us not a good man. My mother was with him for eight years and had my brother through him. So I have a I never call him half brother, but he's my half brother. And um and so when my um so my when my uh, brother was Five years old, my mother divorced my first stepfather, and he had visitation rights on the weekends, and he would call and he would say, you know, he would tell my mother, "I'm coming to pick Kelly up. I'll be there, whatever, five o'clock." And my brother, of course, he was, you know, I'm eight years older, so I would have been like thirteen, and he would, he had a little Superman suitcase, and he'd take his little Superman suitcase, and my stepfather would call and say, I'm going to pick Kelly up at 5. And at 3 o'clock, he'd be out there sitting on a Superman suitcase. Just sitting on a suitcase, waiting for his dad, excited. And 3 o'clock would come, and of course 4 o'clock, and 5 o'clock, and 6 o'clock would come, and 7 o'clock, and 8 o'clock, and 9 o'clock. And finally, I would go out, And I would say, you know, something must have happened with your dad, you know. Why don't you come in? He'd say, my dad said he's coming. My dad's coming. I'd say, okay. You don't want to come in? You know, see if your dad calls? No, my dad said he's coming. And finally, sometimes 9 o'clock at night, sometimes 10 He'd fall asleep on his little Superman suitcase. Middle of winter, summer, didn't matter. For years. And I'd pick him up, and I would carry him to bed. A couple of weeks would go by, and my father would call, stepfather. I'm going to pick Kelly up. And my mother. would. Didn't even want him to pick him up, but you know how that whole thing goes. And he would go sit out on a Superman suitcase. And he'd fall asleep on a Superman suitcase. And I carried him in the house probably for three years. Maybe he got picked up every fifth or sixth time. Always hours late. And sometimes my mother would have to go out and tell him that he couldn't take him because he would come drunk which created a whole other problem, as you can imagine. And, you know, it's resulted that my brother's never married. And he's never, his heart is still broken. And I just, sometimes we create expectation that we, we don't fulfill. And I just wondered, like, we promised them, like, you're saved into a family, but nobody ever comes. And there they sit on their little Superman suitcase, wondering if anybody's going to pick them up. And I just don't want any part of that kind of Christianity. I was saved into a family. I've never not known a family as a Christian. And I don't want any part of anything besides that. And I don't know what's being created, but it doesn't feel like covenant. I'm not talking about you. I'm just—I honestly'm not. I—I I feel like we're moving into, we're moving away from covenant into cohabiting. It's the Judas spirit, and I don't like it. And we're beginning to teach. I feel like this is what I feel like. This is just. Not the word of the Lord, just my feelings. My feelings is, my feeling is that orphans are leaving the orphanage and they're teaching orphans how to be orphans. And we're teaching, we're we're trying to teach, we're trying to teach, you know, we're trying to teach fathering principles to bastards. I don't use that as a cuss word. People who have not been fathered, illegitimate children who have never had a father and they come to the church and we try to teach them fatherly principles we're like this is the shepherding movement. This is this is it. the Lord's my shepherd. It's, and it's all this weird stuff because partly because so many so many leaders have been raised in an orphanage and all we know is control. And we're big brothers like we're elder brothers. You know, the story of the elder brother and the in the prodigal son. It's like, you know, we're, we're competing with the people we're supposed to be leading. And we create hierarchies. You know, I looked up the word hierarchy and it says in the Wikipedia, it says that hierarchy came from the principle of the pecking order, which came from observing chickens, which fits perfectly. Chickens, it's all about fear. Are you you with me at all? It's all about like who's the biggest chicken. Who's the who can peck the hardest? It's like who's the biggest chicken in the chicken coop, and you understand that uh, it takes a, a gifting, a calling, and an anointing to actually have a ministry. Your gifting gives you your ability, your your calling gives you your identity, and your anointing gives you your purpose. If you become the leader because of your gifting, in other words, you have gift-based leadership, and you're the leader because you're the most Qualified, guess what happens when somebody outgrows you? <laughs> the, the culture naturally sabotages any chicken that gets bigger than the rooster in the hen house. Because I have this place because I am the most gifted. I'm the most qualified. I are educated. <laughs> I got my degree. I went to seminary. I got a degree and therefore I'm in charge. In other words, I have performance-based I have performance-based leadership, and if anybody outgrows me, the, just the culture says I have to sabotage their their. I have to sabotage their growth because I'm in this position because I'm the most qualified. But if I'm a father or a mother, by the way, when I say father, I'm not talking about gender here. But if I'm a father, I'm not here because I'm the most qualified. As a matter of fact, Paul said, "I'm an apostle called called." By God, not by, agency of, not by the agency of man. In other words, I'm here because God called me, not because I'm qualified. In fact, he said, me, the least of all the saints. And in other words, you can't take me out because you didn't put me here. I didn't get here because I'm qualified. I didn't get here because I'm the best. I, maybe I'm the least. I got here because I'm dad. And, and, and so I think we're moving from a hierarchy to an hierarchy. We're heirs of Christ Jesus. And there are levels of honor. You guys are so quiet. I'm sorry. We're heirs of Christ Jesus. We, and, and it is true that we've come to a rectangular table. Remember Jesus talked about if you go to a house of a guest and you take too high of a seat. And somebody more distinguished than you, more distinguished than you, comes in the room Then the and then the 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 one who invited you is going to have to say move down somebody more distinguished than you is here and you're going to be humiliated. So he says, take a seat that's too that's lower and wait for the guest to invite you up. And so I think that one of the most um, I think one of the most needed gifts in the body of Christ right now is the distinguishing of spirits. 1st Corinthians 12, it's not the distinguishing of evil spirits. It's called the distinguishing of spirits It's the ability to know people after the spirit instead of after the flesh It's the ability to know that that person's more anointed than I am that person has more favor on their life than I do it, it, you know as long as there's nobody as long as we're all equal and do you understand God loves us all the same but he favors us differently Jesus grew in favor with God and man. Jesus grew in favor with God. And so the ability to distinguish spirits is not just the ability to distinguish evil spirits. Yes, that's true. But I, I don't, think, I don't I think that's the least part of the gift, actually. I think the ability to distinguish people after the Spirit, like 2 Corinthians 5.16 says, we no longer know each other after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So when we come into the room, we can... You know, we can live in sowing and reaping. In other words, you get what you work for, or we can live in inheritance. Inheritance means I get what someone else worked for. But the only way for me to know that someone has more than I do is to to be able to distinguish that they deserve the higher seat than I do. That literally they have more than I have. Literally that they've won more battles than I have. Literally that they have something that I don't have. So I move from sowing and reaping and I move into inheritance. I move into blessing. And I realize that, that there are people on the planet that actually have won battles and have gained grace and they can, and I can receive that grace through impartation or I can spend my life trying to work for what I could get for free. And I, I think because we're, we're, you know, theologically we're coming out of an orphanage, I don't even think we understand what Jacob deceived his, his father out of, why he did that, and why his mother taught him, you need to get your father's blessing. Remember Esau, he sold his birthright. Like, you know, Esau's like, my brother deceived me. No, your brother didn't deceive you. You sold the birthright because you didn't care about it. You are an instant gratification guy. You were willing to, you were willing to pay... Tomorrow for with tomorrow's blessing for today's porridge. Now, he did deceive his father, but he didn't deceive his brother. His brother sold his inheritance. And his mother convinces him, you know, Esau's a hairy man, Jacob's a knot. A, a and his brother convinces him, a knot. <laughs> Sorry. His brother, I mean, his mother convinces him, you know, put skins on on his arms and to, you know, and to, um, you know, smell like Esau, because Esau was a hunter. And his father says to him, you, Isaac says, because Isaac's blind, and Esau, I'm sorry, Esau goes out to hunt, to, you know, get game, to to give his dad a meal, to make his dad a meal, so his father will give him the blessing. In the meantime, Jacob, with you know, animal skins on his arms, comes into his father's room with, his, you know, with his, the meal that his mother helped him prepare. And how many understand the mother helped him prepare? The bride taught the, Jacob, get the inheritance. And he comes in and his father says, you know the story, you smell like Esau, you feel like Esau, but you sound like Jacob. And he receives the blessing. And an hour or two later, Esau comes into the room with the meal and says, Father, bless me. And he goes, what? Who did I just give the blessing to? And he begs his father, but something already passed in the spirit. Something, something had like his father wanted to give Esau the blessing. Esau wanted the blessing, but he had already given it to Jacob. I'm trying to tell you, in the invisible realm, something passed that, that even Isaac couldn't get back and give. To, he couldn't say, wait a second, Jacob deceived me. Listen, that doesn't count. Come here, you saw He already passed it to Jacob. Years later, in Genesis 48, there's a story of Jacob, whose name now is changed to Israel. And he's about to die. And consequently, he's blind. And Joseph brings his two sons in. And says, Father, before you pass, would you bless my sons? And he sets Manasseh on his right knee, the older, and Ephraim on his left knee. And his father does this. Now Jacob knows he has seconds to fix this problem. Because he knows about his uncle. Right? Who, you know, or his dad, I mean, he knows about his dad who got the blessing and his uncle wanted it later and couldn't get it. So when his father does this, Joseph starts yelling, Father, no, Father, no, don't, no. And he grabs his hands. You can feel the urgency in him, like, don't talk. He grabs his hands and he reverses his hands and he puts the right hand on the older son. And Jacob who's blind says to Joseph I know what I'm doing. Joseph I did it on purpose. I know what I'm doing. Manasseh shall be great, but Ephraim shall be greater. In Hebrews chapter 6 it says now leaving the elementary teachings of Christ let us um uh, says something awesome. <laughs> Let us press on the maturity, not laying again a foundation of you know, faith towards God, dead works, resurrection from the dead, baptism, the laying on of hands. And, and, you know, and he gives these six foundational principles of Christ. With the resurrection from the dead and faith towards God, he names in between those laying on of hands. And of course, you know we always like we lay on lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. And our idea is that, that the laying on of hands is for you know, for healing, which is it is. But this is written to the Hebrews. The Hebrew understanding of this scripture is not lay hands on the sick for recover; it's lay hands on this lay hands on the sons to release the blessing to the next generation. And I, I, I'm concerned that what Jacob fought for what Joseph was so concerned about that we've lost sight that there's anything to give that we've lost sight that we've come to a family and there that there is that from one generation to the next that there is actually a blessing that's supposed to be increasing that there is an increasing blessing that in the kingdom succession in the kingdom isn't just passing it's not just passing responsibility and authority it's passing mantles I'm not just like, okay, you're taking my place, here's your authority, here's your responsibility. No, I'm actually passing you, I'm actually passing you a mantle. I'm giving you what I work for. I'm giving you what I won with God. I'm passing that to you, something you didn't have. Now, not only do you have authority and responsibility, but you also have, you have grace in this, in the spirit realm to take on this responsibility that you didn't have a second before, before you took this mantle. Now, Joshua and uh, Moses are, are a great example. When, Moses, when God says to Moses, you know, you're going to die. It's time for you to go. He says to God, God, don't leave me without a successor. And God says, OK, this is what you're going to do. You're going to take Joshua and you're going to take him in front of the people. And you're going you're to tell Eliezer, the priest, to bring the Urim. Now, you know, the priest carries the Urim and the Thummim, Right. The yes and no. He says, just tell Eliezer just to bring the yes. This is already a decision. I'm not asking Eliezer. I'm telling him, come bring the yes. And you're going to bring him in front of the congregation. And in front of the congregation, you're going to give him some of your authority. The interesting thing is, everywhere else, that word authority in Hebrews, translated splendor or translated majesty. You're going to give Joshua some of your majesty. You're not just going to give him responsibility, you're not just going to give him authority, you're going to give him majesty. What's he saying? The people are going to want to follow him because there's favor on him. Not, he doesn't just have positional authority, he has permissional authority from the people because the people see majesty on him that he didn't have one second before Joshua, Moses laid hands on Joshua. And Moses, and Joshua was endowed with wisdom because he got experience from Moses. No. For Moses had laid his hands on him. Joshua was endowed with wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him. Paul, to the Romans, I long to come to you, Romans 1, I long to come to you that I might impart a spiritual gift to you that you may be established. Let me tell you what he's saying. Romans, you guys aren't established. You know why? I haven't come and given you a spiritual gift. You lack something because I'm not there. Oh, it's all about Jesus. It is, but it's the way you receive the things from Jesus. It's, it's horizontal and vertical. Some things you can only get in your personal relationship with God. There's other things you cannot get that way. There are things you can't get personally from God. You, he, you, can, only get, you can only get from the cross. You can only get horizontally. God designed it that way. He didn't it doesn't have to be that way, but God wanted you to have a connection with the head and the body. <laughs> Somebody wrote me on Facebook and said, Do you believe in institutional church? I don't know when you say it like that, it sounds really close to mental. <laughs> do, you, do you believe in institutional church? <coughs> I don't know if I do or not. No? So I said, I'm not sure what you're saying, but do I believe in organization? Yeah, anybody that has more than two kids believes in that. I remember when when our family became an institution. We had four teenagers all home at the same time. And somehow they disappeared from the banquet eating table of the Lord. They all had things to do every night. It's like no one's, the kids aren't home anymore. And so, you know, that we did that for about two weeks and then we had then we then we had institutionalize our family. <laughs> and we said on Tuesdays and Thursdays you will be home for dinner. Well la, 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 la no no, you will be home for dinner. You, you, you it has to be an emergency for you not to be home at dinner. You know why? Well I don't know. Well, because we're a family. <laughs> And, and, like, it hasn't felt like a family for a month or so, so, it, like, we're going to institutionalize this thing. We're going to organize this. You know, and what happens is they come in at, you know, one comes in at seven and says, I'd like to have chicken. And another one comes in at eight and says, you know, i am like, you know, I'd like steak. And, you know, mama's like, listen, we eat at six and you'll be here. <laughs> Sorry, we have to organize meals. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm saying that you, in, you, or, you're, you know, Organization comes from the organs that you have in your body. They're organized for life, right? (laughs) This feels very stressful up here for some reason. (coughs) So I, I think it's important to realize that that we've come to a covenant, and the, uh, that it's a new covenant. It's sometimes the word testament feels like will, but we, we come to a new covenant. This is a covenant, which means we've come into a family that began by laying down our lives. Jesus laid down his life, and we came, to, we came into this covenant through baptism, which is a prophetic statement that we laid down our life to get life. That's how we did it. We didn't come here like, "Um, I'd like to check out the menu. It's like, no, no, here's the baptismal tank and you die. And by the way, we need you in the nursery when you get out of the tank. It's funny to me. It's like, you know, you're like, you're like, hey, you know, can you can you can you move up three seats? And people are like, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. Like, you know, it's weird that we have a culture that will go to work for a boss who doesn't know God, which is fine. Hear me out. and and get there the time that he or she says and do everything they say and wear the uniform they they tell them to wear and and do everything they say to do it for those eight hours. We'll do that for money. We come to church and say, can you help in the nursery? And it's like, have you ever heard the shepherding movement? Trying to control me. I'm like, why don't you try that shepherding movement thing on your boss and see how long you keep a job. It's just, it wearies me that we'll do for money what we won't do for love. And here's the challenge that you'll go home and use that line on your people to control your people. And that's why they don't want. That's why they don't trust you in the first place. In Genesis chapter four, verse one, it says in um, New American translation, New American Standard it says now. Adam or man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she says, "I have gotten the man child by the help of the Lord." And the word "relations" or I think some of your translations say, "and Adam knew Eve." Um, you know, sometimes we think like that's kind of a that's kind of a um, a multicultural kind of smooth out that they had sex together and ended up with Cain. But actually, the word there is not intercourse. The word there is yada. It's used more times in relation to God and man than it is to man and, man and wife. And it means... It, see, the Bible assumes that you know that Adam and Eve had intercourse. It assumes you know that. It doesn't assume that you know that they had yada. That they had a deep inner personal relationship and out of that came children. Are you with me? In other words, it wasn't a one-night stand. <laughs> they didn't have children out of a one-night stand. They had children out of a deep interpersonal relationship. And out of that deep interpersonal relationship came children. And that's why God gave women a hymen, because he wanted children to be born out of a covenant. So he provided the blood so that the covenant could be ratified before the children were conceived. The goal was that children would be born out of covenant. And every time you see your child, you would be reminded of your intimate personal relationship with your wife, they would be of the fruit of the beauty of not cohabiting, but of the intimate personal relationship you have with the woman of your dreams or the man of your dreams. Are you with me? Children were to be born out of covenant. They weren't to be, they weren't to be born out of one night stand, a brush with passion or the music being just right. They were to be born into a covenant family. It wasn't, it wasn't about, let's, let's count how many, you know, Will Chamberlain, it's in Sports Illustrated, so this is not like private story, but uh, he bragged about the fact that he had over a hundred children all over the world. He didn't even know most of their names. I'm like, listen, impregnating people doesn't make you a father. Are you with me? And so I'm simply saying that we, we have to move out of that, that, that orphan mindset and begin to be fathers and mothers so that people actually get saved into a family and not into an orphanage. Well, we brag about how big the orphanage is. But nobody ever comes. And I think it's the Judas spirit. And we have to make sure that before we try to, you know, make sure that it's not in them, we have to make sure it's not in us. That we are fathers and mothers who celebrate and who empower. You know, we empower, we don't enable. There's a big difference between empowering and enabling. If you're afraid to confront, you enable. But if you're a father or mother, you empower. I I don't have any problem confronting you when you're doing things that are you know, creating a negative effect on the family or on yourself. I don't have any problem confronting you because I'm a father and you're a son, and what makes you a son, part of what makes you a son, is you can receive discipline. It's all part of being a family. So part of the challenge for us is that the greatest grace in our lives lies in the twilight years of our days. So that only people who have eyes to see and ears to hear can get it. See, we, everybody in, in at least American culture, wants to be young. It's a compliment to say, oh, that person's young at heart. But remember, Proverbs says that the crown of an old man is his gray hair. Who is most honored in the Bible? The elders. Who is most honored in our culture? I'm not saying valued. I'm saying honored. The youth. Why? Because we have performance-based culture where we honor people who can perform. And when you can't perform anymore, then we put the people away where we can't find them. Because they, they're not like contributing to society anymore. And I'm like, I'd like to tell you where God hides the greatest treasures. He hides the greatest treasures where you'd never think to find them. He hides the greatest treasures in the twilight years of our life when we can no longer perform. So that only those who have eyes to see and ears to hear have a value for this. And we have a whole bunch of people running around working for what they could have got for free. But they don't know about this because their mama didn't teach them. We, um, my family has had the privilege of being a part of Bill and Benny's heritage. You know, we were born without an inheritance. I told you, I lost my biological father at three. He didn't leave an inheritance, he died when he was 22, he didn't have anything, obviously. So, but we met the Johnsons when we were young, and we raised kids together, and and not only were we friends, because we are friends, but we became family. And my children see Bill and Benny as a father and a mother. No, not as a father and mother, as their father and mother. They, they all respect them, all of my kids. I have a wayward son who we adopted who still loves Bill, Bill and Benny, and he's... Opposed right now to the church. But when he sees Bill or Benny, he shows them respect because he loves them. We didn't have the Johnsons for dinner after church. We taught our children how to honor. That you didn't have to always agree. That's not, not about agreement. It's about honor. And uh, two of my son-in-laws are here tonight, and uh, they both pastor churches. And one of them pastors the church that Bill and I and Danny and our team Bill pastored, and then Danny pastored, and Steve Backlund pastored. Sorry if I'm disarming anybody. I'm not trying to. But uh, and our 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 son-in-law and our daughter pastor that church now. We're very proud of them. And um, I didn't ask permission for this, but I think Cameron would be fine with it. I came out of my office, I don't know, six months ago or so, and Cameron and Shannon were leaving the, Bill's office. And I said, hey, what are you guys doing? I didn't know you were here. I said, oh, we've come to see Bill. <laughs> like, we don't have to ask your permission. He's our dad too. I said, oh, cool, you know. I'm thinking, you know, something. Wrong. should I ask? We all, all you that have adult children, you know what I'm talking about, right? like, I'm not sure if do you ask or do you do you hint? That's awesome. You know, Bill doing OK. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, right? Well, it's like I actually want to know what you're doing here, you know. And um, I think it was Cameron who said we, we, we really felt like we needed to we need to reaffirm. I don't know if you put it to these words exactly, but we needed to reaffirm our covenant with Bill let him know that he's our spiritual dad. That, that, that Mountain Chapel, our church, is still under his covering. That we still look to him as our, our apostolic leader and our father. I didn't tell him to do that. I never even suggested it. Not verbally. But they've washed it for 30 years. This natural thing for them to do. And they walked out of my office. I'm like, well, of course, that's what they were doing. <laughs> <laughs> Earl Johnson was our was Bill Bill's dad, and he was a, a grandfather to me, and a, a grandfather to our Mountain Chapel Church. And when Bill came to Mountain Chapel, um, he had. Um, He had that I know of he he had he came under one premise that And it was called Calvary chapel at the time. He told the elders which I wasn't one at the time That I'll I will come and pastor this church. I prayed about it I feel like I'll come and pastor this church if this church comes under my dad's covering And that means that I come see my dad like once a week And that we're come under his authority and our team was like, I don't know if they knew what that meant, but they're like, whatever you need. And so, our, so Earl became our, our grandfather. Bill was our father, but Earl was our grandfather. Every once in a while, he'd, not very often, but he'd show up. No, he'd show up often, but every once in a while, he'd show up in a meeting. Usually, we had to make an adjustment. And Earl had a, a baritone voice. He said, I like this all the time. And he he would uh he worked here is really cool because he he worked here as um as our uh, senior um, our seniors pastor for I don't know how many years. Well, I was the senior associate, and he'd sit in meetings. And of course, you know, he has all this experience. And like, you know, I got here. I've never actually pastored a church. I was a business guy, so. Earl would sit in the meetings and sometimes Bill would be gone traveling and, you know, Pastor Earl's sitting in the meetings and I'm like, you know, am I supposed to like tell him like this is yours to take? (laughs) It's like really intimidating. Here's this patriarch with all this like, you know, wisdom and and experience. And I mean, this guy's definitely like, you know, if we're talking about like a rectangular table, he's sitting at the top. You know, I mean, John would have his head on his chest if it was like Last Supper. (laughs) and you know and it was really it was kind of unnerving it, the first year like he would be in the meetings and if bill was there it wasn't you know problem bill's leading the meeting but if bill wasn't there i'm like you know i'm not really sure what my role is here and he would just keep affirming me he would be he would be quiet in the room and he would just mm-hmm, nod his head and say that's a good word that's love that and and i realized that he was empowering me to lead like no no you lead it's your job to lead i'm i'm here to support you And about maybe two or three times over four years, he'd say, Mr. Vallotton? No, Pastor Vallotton, you call him. Pastor Vallotton? Yes, sir. And you have a conversation with you in your office. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, sir. Listen, before we get there, whatever it is that I did wrong, I will fix and I will give up to half of my kingdom to those I have wronged. You know, it's that kind of feeling. Like Jesus is in the room. You know, he'd sit in my office and he'd be like, "And Pastor Bellatin, I think we need to make this adjustment." Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I don't even. I don't even thinking if I agree. <laughs> Not even an issue right now. <laughs> yes, sir. You, you'll, you'll make that adjustment. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I will. I, I, I won't even think about what you said until you leave, but I just know whatever it was, I'll run it back through my mind, and when I'm not nervous, I'll fix it. <laughs> I just had incredible favor and respect. And uh, it was so amazing. You know, I was I was raised to be a pauper, and, and it was so amazing to be under Bill's care who was raised to be a prince and then under if you will metaphorically speaking under the king i got to live in the king's house and learn the ways of the king It was amazing and so about eight years ago pastor earl got sick and he had cancer and we prayed for him we did everything and that's I mean, two uh, in my mind two of the most uh, impacting messages i've ever heard bill preach and i've her lot was the week before Pastor Earl passed and the week after. And uh, I don't even know the name of the messages. Enduring Faith. Do you still have them available? Two most powerful messages I've ever heard. And um, so Pastor Earl was sick and we were praying for them. We took him all over the country and prayed for him. And we all prayed for him, you know, did everything we knew to do and and um i would once in a while go to see him at home so went towards the towards the end when he was really he was really really sick and i would just go over and see him for uh, you know an hour or so and one day i go over there and you know he's he's pretty weak but he's standing up still dressed to the nines always dressed really nice even when we dressed like pigs <laughs> well more than better than pigs but he always wore a three piece suit totally like he thought we'd catch on at some point. <laughs> like it would be a fad at some point, but we haven't yet. But I, I, so I go over his house and it's, it's afternoon. i like, you know, I'm just come here to pray for you. And, and uh, I said, I feel like I'm supposed to sing over you. And he looks at me and he goes, okay, you can sing on a hill far away. I said, you want me to sing the song on a hill far away? He said, no. I want you to sing on a hill far away. <laughs> I guess he figured that he, he didn't want to take any chances. He was already sick. <laughs> and... As his, his uh, cancer progressed, he, he he slipped into a coma. And the you know the doctors are all you know he's not going to last very long and and um obviously it's really sad it's really sad. And I, I you know I didn't know how to behave, or what to do, and. And when he slipped into a coma, all of the children, the sons, well, the fathers, the mothers, the sons, the daughters, the grandchildren, they all went to his house and they stayed there 24 hours a day, as far as I know, day and night. And they would worship over his bed around the clock that I know of. In The bedroom wasn't really big, and I don't know, this is all by memory, it didn't count, but 30, 40 people in the house all stayed, taking turns sleeping on couches and in other rooms so they could be there. He's totally unconscious in a coma. And I would go there. You know, we were a lot smaller team at the time, so I would stay, you know, run the church, make sure that Bill... Didn't have to think about anything going on here. And and then I would go at night. I'd tell Kathy, and run home, have dinner, go over Pastor Earl's house. And I think I was the only non-family member that was allowed to be in the room, I, that I remember at least. And I would just go. And, and there was mostly no talking, just people in shifts around the room, just worshiping. And there'd always be two or three people laying on the bed. They had king-sized bed, and there'd be two or three people laying on the bed, and they would just take turns laying next to him in shifts. And I would just like—I was just so privileged to be here. Like, I've never seen anything like this before. And so I would just like quietly slip in, and and you know, if there was room in the, I'd look in the bedroom. If there was room in there, I'd kind of work my way. In and just get back in the corner so I wasn't bothering you. I just want to experience what this was like to be a part of a family. And watch this whole honor royal family. It's a royal family. And I never had a family like this. I, I, to be clear, I had a mom that always loved me and she's still alive and she's a believer and I, I, I love my mom and honor her, but just came from a broken family too, so. So I'd just slip in the room and get in a corner and, you know, of course everybody would be kind of, Chris, how you doing? You know? Now I just stand there for an hour or two and different people rotate in and I don't remember what day it was and I'm sorry, Bill, if I have the details wrong. That's the way I remember it. it Seems like the fifth or sixth day of him being in a coma. Everybody's kind of, you know, just worshiping around him. A couple, three people laying on the bed. Like it's been days like that, and I come in for just an hour or two, and then I'm sitting in the back, just standing in the back room, just worshiping with everybody else. And sometimes they'd have music on, sometimes they'd be singing over him, and um, and suddenly he's laying face to face with somebody who's always there's always someone praying for him and just talking to him, even though he's in a coma, talking to him, and and suddenly he wakes up out of the coma. And he says something. I don't know. I love you, or mouths very quietly to whoever it was first who was on the bed. I love you. And suddenly, everyone just starts scrambling like, "Dad's Dad's awake! Dad's awake!" And I, I'm in. I happened to be there. Like it happened. He happened to wake up. While I was there? I'm like, okay. Should I leave? Should I stay? You know. I'm like. I, I really want to stay, but I, I like there's not a lot of room in the in the bedroom for everybody, and everybody crams in the bedroom. People get on the on the bed, and you know they don't know if he's going to be awake for a minute or how long. And and I'm you know I'm like I don't you know everything in me is like I probably should leave, but maybe I could just disappear into the wall and not bother anybody and just watch what happens. And Bill says to his father, Dad, would you would you bless? Would you bless your sons and daughters? And one by one, they lay on the bed. and He's really weak. They put his hand on him and he would bless them. He would mouth, I don't know what he was saying, I bless you. I love you. They would take turns getting on the bed. Children, grandchildren, fathers, everybody, mothers, everybody. I was like, never seen anything like this before. The intensity in the room not the right word. The presence of God in the room was so thick it 's impossible to explain with words so i 'm sitting there i 'm standing against the wall, and we're coming in and and he 's blessing he 's blessing each one of them and and um Everybody was blessed, and Bill, and I'm like just trying to not make any noise. And Bill looks over at me, and he says to his dad, Chris is here. And he motions for me to lay next to him. Michael, I can't believe this is happening. And he says to me, I have always loved you. And minutes later, slips into a coma. I cannot believe I was there. That's what I want to be part of. I don't know what this other stuff is, that's going on, but I, uh, I want to be a part of a family. That's what I want to reproduce. And you know what? Every time I get the flu, I call all my kids. Just in case, you never do know when the big one's gonna happen. I'm, if I'm puking in the toilet, I want everybody like in the bathroom. Just, I got them on a speed dial. I'll just like, here, call the kids, tell them I'm sick. Hey, you just had the flu. You just never know when this could just turn into something terrible, and I want them there. Like, Pastor Earl, lay hands on him. I'm going to be there. I have all my kids around me. Mount can we not turn the church into a business? I was a part of a business for 20 years. I don't want, I don't want, I don't want to lead a business. I don't want to be a father to a family. I don't want my... Of course, we have employees. So in this context, I don't want to think of them as employees. I want to think of sons and daughters. And yeah, they may have to find a job someplace else if this isn't right for them, but it it's, should be father first, family first. I understand this gets more complicated. We work on it all the time. We, five, we have 520 employees I do understand. There's a performance aspect to this that's healthy. I get it all that. I work with it every day. But I'm saying we want to be family first. We want to be a covenant. I want to pray for you. Would you stand, please? I don't know what else to say. Would you put your hand on your heart? I'm sorry. We need to do something else. we we'll just put your hands down for a second. I'm sorry. Many of you were born in an orphanage, metaphorically speaking. And while I'm speaking to you, when I'm sharing, you're like, I, I, I'm leading, but I've never had a father. A mother, father. You understand what I'm saying? And sometimes when we use the word father, we all know that like father has negative connotations in our environments, not just because of the church, but because of all the dysfunction that's in our cultures, pretty much all over the world. And so when we're talking about fathers, you know, it isn't just your people that have trouble with it. I mean, some of you are okay with the word father as long as you're the father. (laughs) But you've never been a son. You've never been a daughter. And you're trying to have authority without being under authority. And I'm not using the word authority in any kind of like, that, you know, the way that could be used. I'm talking about you don't have dad. You know, you don't have somebody. You know, it, if something happened in your life that was amazing, you don't really know who you would call. Say, oh, I won this trophy. Celebrate with me. I, I told you I lost my dad at three. I, I honestly never really missed my dad until we had our first kid. I never knew what it was like. But I remember when I missed him the most, I wrote my first book, which you know I told you I was illiterate when I graduated, so writing a book for me is like a lot more than like words on paper like organized in some fashion people can understand. And I remember I got from the publisher sent me the first book. And I remember being in my office thinking, if my dad was here, he would be so proud of me right now. Right. And I remember just sitting on my couch in my office thinking, I wonder what he'd say to me. And it, some of you have never had a father, a mother. We've never had anybody. You're trying to be a father. You're doing the best you know how to do. You've never really been a son to anybody. Never been a daughter to anybody. And just the word father is painful like it would for me when I when I met my first spiritual father. It's like even, even into the early days with Bill, like, wow, you know, authority abused me for years. So trying to be under someone else was hard. And if that's you, I feel like we're supposed to pray for you. I don't want to embarrass you. But I do I do feel like we're supposed to pray for you. That God would heal your heart. And that he would give you a father. So that you can be a father. You can be a mother. Because you've been a son. You've been a daughter. If that's you, would you raise your hand? I want to pray for you right now. Let's not do the I have no needs among leaders thing. Okay, hey, let's not do that. If you, if that's you, you know it because your heart's on fire right now. Just, that's that's me. I've never had a father. You're talking about fatherhood. You're talking about motherhood, and I, I hear your words, but I, I don't know by experience what you're talking about. Would you raise your hand? Those around them, would you just put your hand on their shoulder, please? Just leave your hands up until you have someone praying for you. And just, I want to pray for their hearts. I want to pray that the Lord would just remove, in fact, let's just do that. Lord, we just pray right now for our sisters, our brothers. Lord, that you would that you would restore their soul, that you would take away the pain of the past, that you would take away the fear of authority, the fear of fathers, the fear of mothers, Lord that you would take, that you would break the orphan's spirit. you would break any spirit of independence that, that lives in us who, have, who were abused or abandoned or forgotten. Lord, I just pray for that right now in Jesus name. I just pray right now in Jesus name, that you would release them from this absence and this bondage and this abandonment. And like David said, that you would restore their souls. I pray for that right now in Jesus' name. They would leave here a completely and totally different person. Lord, I pray that they would become like a child. They would become like a daughter, like a son. And when they come home, their people would be like, I don't know what happened, but dad's home. Mom's home. Lord, just release that into them right now. Lord, I thank you that you've that you've done that for my, for me and for Kathy too. That that you healed that you healed us and that you that you helped us be able to receive spiritual fathers and mothers into our lives. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We just release that all over people right now. In Jesus' name, we just release your mantle, your anointing over these right here. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, let's put your hand on your own heart now. Father, we pray for our own hearts that you would give us that you would heal our hearts, that you would give us a sense of family, that you would take away any kind of orphan spirit that lives in us, even us that have had fathers and mothers, even us that, even those of us who do have mothers and fathers, that you would, that you would take away that, that you would teach us how to be fathers and mothers in the kingdom, that we would release inheritance on our sons and daughters, that they could become mothers and fathers, that we would, that we would help to live in covenant that we would be, we wouldn't be afraid of covenant. That we would become a, a covenant community. A, a family that is plans to stay together forever. That we're not trying something. That we're actually living in, in a family. We, and we actually, covenant means more to us than, than justice or even more than disagreements. Lord, we just release that on every single person in the room. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Just turn and give somebody a hug. Just give them a hug and let's love on them a little bit.